I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome along. It's the Writer's Routine Podcast. Every week right here, we chat to a top author and we try and learn the secrets of their working day. You know, to try and help our own floundering attempts to become a writer. This week, we're chatting to Paul Burston. He's an author, a journalist. He was a founding editor of Attitude magazine. He holds writing classes and he's just moved into crime fiction with his book released in 2016 called The Black Path. Now, we talk about how he moved between voices, between tenses and tones. We'll get tips on the best way of unclogging your writer's block. And also, we'll hear about the in-depth, dedicated and tireless research that he did for his first book. In those days I was quite, how did I put this? <laughs> I had quite a few compulsions in those but days. Hedonistic be a term? Yes, hedonistic is a very good way of putting okay. it. I was very hedonistic in those <laughs> days. That's with Paul Burston on the way in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, hello, thank you so much for downloading. My name is Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine. Uh, now I've been thinking a lot recently all about how books massively affect emotions. I know that seems like quite a quaint and naive statement to make, really. But you see, over the winter, I find myself vociferously reading far more than I do at any other point of the year. And I've been kind of thinking about why. You see, the secret, um, I'm a dreadfully slow reader in real life. I think one of the reasons that I do this podcast to help me get better at writing is because I'm so distracted while I sit down at my laptop to try and pen my own work. And it's kind of the same as reading, really. Uh, I don't know if this is the same for you. You're probably a much better reader than I am. Uh, I kind of read a paragraph, see something interesting in that paragraph. Then I kind of go into a dream world thinking about that. Maybe I'll open my phone, get on Google, Wikipedia, whatever it is I've learned there. And then I kind of keep doing this cycle. It takes me so long. But over the winter... I churn through books and I've been kind of mulling this over and I reckon it's because of two reasons. Number one, it's kind of the obvious one. It's cold. Uh, You can't go out as much. There's not as many opportunities to lie in beer gardens all day as there is in summer. So there isn't as much to do. You kind of curl up with a book by the fire from a 1940s Christmas film. And two, I think this really hits home for me as well. I think the dark, the cold, it kind of affects my mood somewhat. I get like a little bit down and lethargic over the winter. 
And I seek solace in the comfort and the characters of my favourite books and and ones I don't know yet as well. And it's made me really reflect upon uh, how brilliant mood shifters books are. You know, when I'm down, they help get me up. They calm me down as well. I'd love to hear about you, though. What books do you use uh, to shift your mood? I don't know, be it happy, whether you're sad, uh, whether you're excited, you need to be calmed down, whether you're a bit melancholy and you want something magnificent, just do me a favour, tell me the books that do it for you, that help shift your mood. You can send me a message over at writersroutine.com. Also, very quickly, while I'm talking to you about ways that you can get in touch with the show, remember it would be grand if you could leave Writer's Routine a review on the iTunes podcast store. That way we can make this show become something kind of really important, special, uh, and get momentum building along the way. Five stars uh, and some nice words on there always helps as well. Then I can know that you're listening and that you're loving what we're doing. We can get more authors involved there as well. Uh, We can get more people listening and all that lovely stuff. So yeah, do me a favour, just get over to the iTunes podcast store, find Writer's Routine and leave us a review. Now, our guest on the show this week is Paul Burston. He's a journalist, uh, an author. He was one of the founding editors of Attitude magazine. He runs a writing salon as well. Uh, it's called Polari and he takes it all over the country to impart his own writing wisdom. But you don't need to travel anywhere for it right now, just keep listening to this show. Uh, his first novel was published in 2001 called Shameless and it's all about the kind of Soho clubbing scene at that time and to write that he had to research it naturally and that meant doing a lot in the Soho clubbing scene of the time and to be honest I don't get the impression that that was really too tough a task for him. Now in March 2016 he was featured in a global list by the British Council as one of 33 visionary people who are promoting free freedom, equality and LGBT rights all around the world. And later on that year, he published his first crime novel. It's called The Black Path and it's all about the army, about being gay in there and about living in South Wales and being a military wife. You'll hear loads more about that in the show. Now, our distinguished diary this week, by the way, is with the Lord of Horror, the flies and I don't know, maybe even the dance as well, who I've never seen him at a party. Stephen King uh, will get his weird and wonderful writer's routine in just a little bit. First, let's get into today's guest then, the author Paul Burston, who finds himself being inspired all the time by other books. I find that if I don't read regularly, that my writing brain sort of sort of atrophies and I find that I have to read it kind of it's sort of feeding the whatever part of the brain it is that, that, that is producing the words. I, I think that the rhythms of other... You have to be careful not to sort of absorb them too much because then you start repeating them. But I think, the, you know, rhythms of writing kind of get stuck in, in your head and then you sort of... You realise how you can apply certain sounds or certain um, co- certain construction to, the, what, to, what, to what you're working on. So I often find that other people's work inspires me quite in a positive way. I think I'm a magpie. I think I think I think I I think I take little bits from here and there and everywhere, and sort of they pro they, they go into a sort of into a process and they come out of something else. So I don't think I'm, I'm ever sort of aping or imitating anyone sort of slavishly. I just think that there are there are certain things that you learn about how you you know what sort of risks you can take, what kind of um, different ways of presenting something than just a straightforward narrative, perhaps or. Um, where it might be useful to break something up by having dialogue or whatever it might be. And often you, I'm, you'll, you'll be stuck on something and you'll see someone else 
fix that solution, find the solution to that problem. It's, it's, it's about finding solutions to problems, really. And you, you know what your story is when you start writing your book, or at least you should. I, I think you, you should have a rough idea what your story is when you start writing a book. Um, and you may well sort of deviate slightly from the original path. And I certainly don't always stick rigorously to a plan. I, I, I write one, but I often go wildly off it. But it's still my story. So anything else that, that happens along the way is just going to inspire me in sort of small ways. It's not going to take over the, the, main, you know, the main piece. It has a life of its own. And, and you say uh, that you do start with a plan. You quite often, I, I found out doing this, that all writers <laughs> could deviate very quickly for, yeah. from the path. But so say with the, with the latest book that you had published, which was uh, The Black Path. Yeah. What was the initial idea that you had for that? And what did it end up becoming? And how did it change along the way? The initial idea was, um, I'm from a town called Bridgend in South Wales. It's a very, very big army recruitment town. Um, it's one of those towns that sort of seen better days. And at the weekend, it's quite kind of, it can be quite scary. Um, lots of people with not much to do apart from get drunk. And the, the town is quite kind of dilapidated now. So part of the idea was was to write about somebody coming from that town, where, which I came from many, many years ago. And the second thing that happened was that I met this soldier called James Wharton, who was the first gay soldier to appear on the cover of Soldier magazine. And we met at a charity event. And I was fascinated by some of the stories he told about when he was serving in, in Iraq um, with Prince Harry. He wrote about it. He wrote a book called Out in the Army right, later on about all these, these experiences. And though those two ideas sort of came together. So I thought, what if this soldier came from my town and was serving in Afghanistan? And the main the other main character which was Helen was partly inspired by my sister my younger sister Jacqueline and partly inspired by some other women that I knew from when I grew up who all ended up as being soldiers wives so the original idea was it was it was a story about a soldier's wife and it was really her sort of journey from being a kind of um quite sort of put upon downtrodden person to being a sort of braver person I didn't realise at the start that I was actually... I thought it was going to be a sort of rite of passage novel. I didn't realise it was going to become a, a thriller until I started writing it. So I, I, even though I, I, pl I plotted it quite carefully, um, I just didn't realise what the tone was. So when I, the, first, the first draft of the first few chapters was so awful. The tone was completely awful. It was completely wrong. Um, and I realised after... I was in, I'm in a writing group. I meet with two other writers every week and we go through our work together. And I think we on our third or fourth session they both said you do realize this is a thriller you're trying to write a thriller and you're not really letting it come out properly so i went back and, and, and changed it all and then it's it, it did it did um go off the original path so to speak it did it did go in different directions so you're in your writing group mm -hmm. and you're told that this is actually a thriller you've got the voice <laughs> of a, a thriller screaming to come out here but how do you change that then because surely then you've got to think about the tropes of a thriller, the, the standard narrative voice of a thriller, and kind of help that come through? To be honest with you, it, was, it wasn't a question of rewriting hugely. It was a question of taking things out. Because my background is, is, is as a journalist. So as a journalist, you have a tendency to want to explain everything to the reader <laughs> um, and let them know everything. And of course, you don't, you know, that, that's what you shouldn't do when you're writing a book, a book of that kind. So I had to go back and remove, the, take things out, edit. It was, a, it was a really hard edit, really. It was just to, to take, doing a really hard edit on the first five, six chapters. Um, and after that, the tone, kind of the voice found itself then. If I read a thriller and, or I read a book and, and at the end there's a twist, which is basically that someone's been lying the entire time, I, I feel cheated. <laughs> it has to be cleverer than that. So 
there has to be reason for it. You know, you can't just be somebody that they're a liar. Unless, of course, you're double bluffing. So you've got a character who's clear. I mean, I've got a character in this new book who's clearly an unreliable narrator. And that's obvious and very early in the story. But that isn't the point. And if, that, if that were the twist, it would be pretty lame. Um, I read my first unreliable narrator story the other day, actually. Oh, did the, you? The, the very, I think the most famous one. Oh, it's the, it's the Poirot one. And I wasn't that bothered by that. Because I think it's, you know, it's, it's like history, isn't it? That's true. I, I, think, I, think, I think it's a question of, you know, there's a time and a place and there are many, many great books written, but, you know, over the years, even, even quite recent ones, where that, that works. And, and, and the, the, the fact that the narrator has been unreliable is, is a twist and, and does give you, does take you by surprise and, and make you question what you've read before and all that stuff. I just think that sometimes it, it can feel a little bit like cheating. It's and an I, easy get out, isn't yeah, it? It can feel a bit like cheating sometimes. I, th- I, th- I think that, and also I think that readers of these books are much cleverer than people give them credit for. I think that, you know, if they, a lot of them read an awful lot of books. And if people are reading all those books, you, you can't just be another one, yet another story where there's the same, you know, there's the same uh, modus operandi. I just think it becomes a little bit slack and a bit lazy so how do you make sure then as an author that your work is not uh, wallpaper it's, it's not window dressing it's going to stand out for me personally I think that the characters have to come first I think that you can have a really good story you can have a, you can have a really good clever plot you can have a really great twist but I think if the characters aren't living and breathing and three-dimensional and empathetic if not always sympathetic then I think there's the, you've, 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 got le- you've got less to give the reader I think I don't like to read books that are all plot and no character even though I could admire them technically speaking I think if the characters don't really sort of ring true or I don't feel that they're people that I recognise or, or I, I always start from a position of who's my main character and what is the challenge that they're going to face that's how I always start I don't, I, and then, then the plot kind of comes out of that Rather than rather than rather than saying, here's my plot, and what character should I fit into that? If that makes sense. I know, like absolutely. You're kind of you're building a believable character and then dropping them in a in a, in a situation. Into a situation, yeah. and, and the situation you know should be a situation that is going to somehow show this character at their best or worst, and then from that you can you can leap off in all kinds of directions. So with the with the book you're writing at the moment. Mm-hmm. And you say it's in, it's in many voices and across across a few tenses as well. Tell me about the plotting of that then, because I'd imagine uh, something that does flip flop it, it changes voice uh, fairly often. It, it requires you as as a writer to be on top of things to know exactly what's going on when. Yeah. How have you gone about plotting and planning this? Um, lots of post-it notes <laughs> at the beginning. Um, I did do a um, a board. You know, I have a board in my office as well, which I sort of pin um, cards on. So I did a sort of storyboard for it. Um, I knew that the first person narrator was probably the most important voice to get down first. So I did that first, and that, that, I wrote the the entire piece because it's the first person. Because you you do you do find yourself going off on flights of fancy. You know, you do find yourself being taken in places you didn't think you were going to go because you're inside that character's head, and they can, they they become quite real. Well, they become very real to you when you're writing. So once I once I'd finished that, the the the, the chapters that were going to go in between, i.e., the other the other um, characters' chapters, 
changed quite a bit to fit. There's also some quite black comedy in it at points. There are some quite funny bits where you're invited to laugh at the, the gap between somebody's perception of themselves and how the reader is perceiving them. And have you planned that comedy or is it just as... No, that, 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 purely, that totally came out of the character. I, I started off with a character that was partly based on a, on a, on a, on a real-life incident. I had a stalker some years ago. And uh, he went to court. So it started off... That was, the, that was part of the inspiration for this story. And at the beginning, my feelings about that person were quite hostile. <laughs> and as I've written the book, they've changed. So I am quite good or quite open to looking back at, my, at certain things and think, well, did I really behave the best way I could have done? And could I have handled that better than I did? And all that kind of stuff. You know, as a writer, well, as a fiction writer, I, I don't think you can call yourself a writer unless you're able to try and put yourself in somebody else's mind. And doing that invariably means you're going to find points of entry with that character. You're going to find ways of trying to understand what they did rather than condemn them for what they did. If, if, if all you did as a novelist was condemn your characters, your books wouldn't be wouldn't be living thing. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Remember, you can get updates on this show. You can get clips from all our episodes so far. You can get pictures uh, from interviews with some of your favourite authors by just giving us a follow on Instagram. We are Writer's Routine on there. Also, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, it's at Writer's Routine. And we've got a website too, writersroutine.com. It's where you can listen to loads of old episodes. You can find all the ways that you can subscribe to the show. And also, you can get in touch with us there as well. It's online over at writersroutine.com. Right, let's do Distinguished Diary then. This is our weekly look at some of the weird and wonderful writing routines of the most successful authors. Today, it's Stephen King. 
Stephen King, the uh, the horror man, you know, him off The Shining, It, Carrie, I really could go on, honestly. If I did nothing more right now than just list all the books that he's had published, uh, this would be the longest episode of The Writer's Routine yet. Uh, anyway, Stephen, he aims to write six pages a day. You notice with American writers, actually, whereas Brits work with a word count, Every American author that I've spoken to uh, always deals in pages. And King, he tries to write six every single day because then he figures out he can pretty much get a whole book done in around about two months. Well, the first draft of it anyway. Uh, And he says that's only if it goes well. He says that quite pointedly as if most of the time it doesn't always go that well. And it usually takes him around four hours to do those six pages every single day. Uh, He says that he wakes up with a cup of tea and then between 8 and 8.30 in the morning, he'll sit down to write in the same place every day. He has a vitamin pill with him. He sticks his music on uh, and he just sits there in the same seat until he gets the work done. All the papers as well are arranged in exactly the same way every day. He's got a brilliant turn of phrase to kind of describe this ritual, this routine. Uh, You'd expect nothing else really but a brilliant turn of phrase from Stephen King. Uh, It tells us why he keeps to this pattern. He says the cumulative purpose of doing these things the same way every day, it seems to be a way of saying to his mind, you're going to be dreaming soon. You're going to be lost in fantasy. You're going to be deep into your work. And I mean, Stephen King, he's written over 50 novels, had over 350 million books sold. Uh, He dreams a lot. Extremely successful dreams, too. Oh, very quickly, before we get into part two, if you love Stephen King, by the way, or you know someone that's a massive King and horror fan, let them know what's on the way in the next few weeks on Writer's Routine. Stephen King has just released a book and published it with his son, Owen. It's called Sleeping Beauties, and I'm getting Owen King on this show to chat to him about his daily writing routine really soon. Let's get back to it then. Part two of our interview with today's author, journalist and satirist turned crime writer, Paul Burston. And I'm keen to know a lot more about his writing routine, particularly uh, his plotting and how he knows what's happening when. If I'm writing chapter two, I'll know what's happening in chapter three and I'll have a rough idea of what's happening in chapter four and maybe one plot point for chapter five. And what, what happens is that as, as you get to the end of chapter two and you see chapter three more clearly and you see chapter four slightly more clearly and chapter five, it sort of goes like that. So it's almost like you're travelling down a, a foggy road almost. Yeah, that, definitely. Yeah, that's, a really good, that's a really good metaphor. It does feel like that. It does feel like that. And, and that sometimes you... The, 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 the frustrating bit and also the fun bit, because they do come together, is, is that when you think you know where you're going and then suddenly something happens and you realise you're going the wrong way. Or a character, when you're channeling these characters, when, when one of your characters sort of suggests, Let, let's not go there, let's go down here instead. And you realise that actually that's a much more interesting way to go, even though, it's, even though it means you need to rethink things quite a bit and, and rejig them. It's fun because that's where it really takes on a life of its own. If you get too precious about your storyboard or your, your wherever you've planned it out, if you get too precious about that and, and, and are too sort of fixed about where you're going and refuse to be flexible, I think, I think it ends up dying on you. You end up with a sort of, you're dragging a kind of dead, dead book around with you. You, 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 have, you have to let it live and you have to have faith in it that when, you know, it's, it's, only, it's only your subconscious, isn't it, at the end of the day, but when your subconscious is saying, let's go here, there's a reason for that. 
And you, so follow it and see see where it takes you. And, and you, you believe that's why it's happening. You you think that it's because um, your your brain is kind of working over this story while you're doing other things. Absolutely, I know it is. I know that for a fact. I know that because I, I know whenever whenever I get the whenever I get the writer the writer's block, um, I've learned now that the, 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 the thing to do when that happens is is not worry about it. Just go and do something else, and it'll work itself. It'll work its way out. Go to the gym. Go for a walk. Just do something completely not related to what the you know, to, to what the writing is. For me personally, I find exercise helps enormously. So I'll, I'll I'll get up in the morning and I'll write for two, three, four hours, and I'll go to the gym and. Or I'll go for a run. And what time are you getting up in the morning to do this? Usually about seven. And are you writing from seven? I, I usually just make a cup of coffee and sit straight down. I, I, I don't even talk to anyone. <laughs> I can be quite antisocial first thing in the morning. So then you've done your, your three or four hours, then you've gone to the gym? Yeah. And then... then I am that strange person on the treadmill with their phone tapping away but I'm not texting I'm actually writing because I'll be on the I'll be on the treadmill and suddenly I'll be like ah that's what that and so it'll, it might just be a couple of words or a sentence or a phrase or, or, or a note to myself of what I need to do when I get back home and because my gym is five minutes from here um, so I will literally tap that onto my phone in form of an email or in my notes and just you know send it to myself and then I'll come home and I'll and I'll, and I'll work it through and, and add it to what I'm doing um, and then I might work for a few more hours in the afternoon. So you're a bit of a renaissance man. You do a lot of different things. Yes. And then, so is that the only time you're writing? You're writing from seven till about, I don't know, 10, 11. Then you're writing again in the afternoon? It depends where, what's the, what stage I'm at. Um, so on the whole, yes. Um, if I'm near completion, like I'm at the moment with this book, then I tend to write more. So I may well do some this evening as well. And I, I tend to find as, as you get as, as you get towards the end of the book, it's it's almost like going down a hill, and you have to sort of like you know get it all out because you can feel it. You can feel it running away from you. And uh, so I, I tend to write more. I tend to find that it, it the, the words come out more quickly um, towards the end. Um, the, the tendency then, of course, is, is to rush it. So you have to sort of stop yourself from 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 rushing. But Otherwise, I, I'm quite disciplined and I just stick to the allotted times. I try, if I can, to fit end, end whatever time of day it is that I'm working until to end where, at a place where I'm happy, not, not with a problem. So that when I go back to the next morning, I know it's going to start off on a positive note. Because you... I, I can't bear going back and starting on a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's just horrible. <laughs> I think that's probably the issue, isn't it? Because, uh, because then you just don't want to pick up the pen again. Absolutely. So... Have you, have you decided in your mind that morning when you've woken up at what point you'll be working to? Is it a time issue? Is it a word count issue? No, I mean, I used I used to have a word count. Um, I used to aim for, you know, 500 or 1,000, whatever it was, words a day. Nowadays, I don't really worry so much about that. I just worry about... The, how many of those words are actually going to stay, still survive the night, you know? Because you, know, you, you can see... I know people who, who can literally write, you know, thousands of words in a day. And I have on occasion when I'm on a first draft um, written large amounts but then most of that doesn't survive the second edit so have you tried to be more economical now because I've spoken to some authors again who are very keen to just get anything out you can always cut but you can't it, it's, it's much easier to cut than it is to add yes uh, now you're uh, six six books are you on your sixth book now my sixth novel it's yeah. your sixth novel now apologies uh, um, are you trying to be more economical and wiser about it to save yourself time I think it's partly that, and I think it's partly that 
you know, the more you do it, it does get easier. I mean, it, it, some, some, sometimes it doesn't feel like that. And sometimes you still sit there fa- facing a screen and thinking, I can't do this. And you know you, know you can, because there's the evidence on your bookshelf. There's the books you've published already sitting there, proudly waving at you. My worst day is when I sit down and I have, say, three hours work, and I've got maybe a couple of hundred words to show for it. That's so frustrating, because it feels like such a waste of time. But what I always find, it, nearly every single time, is that the next day you'll do double the amount because everything that wasn't working on Monday will suddenly process through the night and will we'll all come out on Tuesday. So it doesn't really matter. that It balances out. You know, you end up getting the words done anyway. As you say, on your sixth novel, how it's changed since your first. So that would have been shameless. Yes. Try and talk me through your average day from waking up to going to sleep um, at whatever time that was uh, of, of writing shameless. It was very different to how it, how it works now. Um, I was working as a journalist full-time then. Um, I used to write a, maybe for an hour in the morning. Um, but my lifestyle was very different. It was, it was nearly 20 years ago. Um, I mean, I, well, it was published in 2001. So, yeah, 8 to 16 years ago. Um, I, was, I, was, I was out a lot in those days at, at night. I was, I'm, I'm more of an early bird. I'm, I'm, I tend to be more sort of early to bed and up early nowadays. Those days I used to be a night owl. So I often used to come in from, from bars or clubs and sit down and write for an hour. Um, and that book is sort of about that lifestyle anyway. It's sort of set in clubland. And uh, I, was sort of living the, I was sort of living that book as, as I was writing it. A lot of it was based on personal experience, that book. A lot of it was based on the experience of people around me. Um, when I first moved into this building in 1995, where we were sitting now, there was a guy over the hall and he became the inspiration for the main character because of what happened to him. So a lot of the story was based on him. A lot of it was based on the people I was meeting on the club scene. So it was a very different process. It wasn't, it was, it was, it was a bit more journalistic in a way, that book. It was a bit sort of impre- like an impressionistic journalistic novel about a world and, and, you know, and it was a black comedy it was a sort of, sort of satire about, about that sort of that sort of looking for love in all the wrong places sort of, sort of lifestyle but also my, you know, my, my, my lifestyle changed in those days I was quite um, how do I put this <laughs> I had quite a few compulsions in those Would days hedonistic be a term yes hedonistic is a very good way of putting okay. it I was very hedonistic in those <laughs> days um, I'm not so much now so um, when, you're, when you're hedonistic the writing takes a different uh, shape and it, and it, and it, it occupies, occupies a different place in your daily routine. And how long, was, how long did that take you to write if you were, I say only, but if you were writing, I don't know, a few hours in the morning and a few then again in the evening and you had a full day of um, work, partying and... I think from the time I started writing it to the time I'd finished it, took was probably close to three years. Wow. Two and a half years maybe. There was a lot of research. <laughs> and a lot of the research had a negative effect on the actual writing. <laughs> okay. That's fine. You're six novels down now. It kind of all worked out. So uh, I'm interested in, because I know that possibly people will listen who uh, have got a book, but don't know then what to do. Um, uh, how did you go about getting that out there and published? Uh, well, I mean, I was very fortunate. I, I had a, a deal um, already for a, for a, a non-fiction book with Little Brown. And, my... and this wasn't a non-fiction book? <laughs> <laughs> Not officially, no. And, um, and my editor at the time uh, was very keen for me to write. It was, his, it was his suggestion that I write a novel. So um, I, didn't, I didn't have to sort of go hawking it around. I already had someone, you know, they'd, they'd already um, said they were interested and, and you know, would I write something 
we and we discussed it in great in great detail what the book was going to be. They knew they knew what they knew what to expect. I think it may be a little bit more hedonistic than they thought, and maybe a little bit more outrageous than they thought. Um, but they were very very supportive, and they really enjoyed it, and they liked it. So that was all fine. We do these writing workshops as part of our touring uh, with Polari, my literary event that I run. And one thing I say to people all the time is, it's you know, writing is a really really lonely activity. And it's, you can feel very isolated, if, especially if you, if you don't have a publisher, you don't, you don't have an agent, an editor sort of, you know, buying you up and encouraging you. It can be, you can, it can be quite difficult. And I think that what I would advise everyone to do is to sort of find some kind of support group of write, uh, fellow writers, try and, try and hook up with other writers, even if it's, you know, if, if, if they're not physically in your, in your location, in your, your area of, of the country, then find them online. But I think to have some kind of sense of a community of writers really helps you. Um, I, I couldn't write now without my support group. I couldn't. I couldn't write without my writing group. I couldn't write without my, the people that I first give my my stuff. I first show my my work to. I couldn't do it without them. I, I think you need. Uh, well, I personally need that. I think it's very important to my process that there are people giving me feedback. But that is it then. Another episode of Writer's Routine done, in the bag, downloadable on iTunes and all good podcast providers. Uh, thanks so much to Paul Burston for coming on the show. His novel, The Black Path, it's out right now. And you can also get a handy link for his stuff, his website, all of that uh, on my site, which is writersroutine.com. Remember as well, give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. You can also email the show at writersroutine at gmail.com. Please as well, leave us a review on iTunes. Five stars is amazing. Drop me your name on there as well so I know that you're listening and you're loving what we're doing. And while you're there too, be sure to subscribe because I promise you don't want to miss next week's episode. We're chatting to one of Britain's biggest radio DJs and he's a podcast hero as well. Uh, He's one of the kings of the platform. Uh, He's from the BBC Radio 2 Drive Time show, him off of The Confessions, and he's one half of Wittertainment with Mark Kermode. So yeah, make sure you are here next week. Uh, We will say hello to Jason Isaacs and talk about Itch with Simon Mayo. Yeah, that's next week on Writer's Routine. I'll see you then. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.